long last, welcome back to Unspoken Unsung, the podcast that introduces people we may pass on the street many times, never knowing how inspiring their life experiences, their unsung accomplishments are, or really how much we could learn from them if we only knew their untold stories. As we leave 2020 behind, we who bring Unspoken Unsung to you look hopefully forward to a brighter year ahead. We wish solace and recovery for those worldwide who suffered through unimaginable losses, hardship, and separation this past year. Here's hoping that the artificial barriers of nationality, race, and ideology begin to break down in the face of our common humanity and our shared life on what astronomer Carl Sagan so aptly called this pale blue dot we call home. It's only fitting to launch 2021 in conversation with a woman who provided much of the inspiration to create this podcast series. Emily LeBeau Lucchese is a journalist whose writing has been published in the Chicago Tribune, New York Times, and in the Atlantic, to name just a few. She's the author of two powerful nonfiction books. She's also a professor in the communication department of Elmhurst College. One of the books Emily wrote is titled, This is Really War, the incredible true story of a Navy nurse POW in the occupied Philippines. The nurse Emily wrote about is my mother. Mom seldom spoke about her wartime experiences, and when she did, she downplayed the hardships she endured. She lived a quiet life of service that even her own children knew surprisingly little about until we read Emily's painstakingly researched and beautifully written book. While she was alive, my mother's exploits and accomplishments were unspoken, unsung, just like so many others we meet every day. In learning about my own mother, it became an irresistible call to share the stories of others whose lives and lessons are known to relatively few. It's a great joy today to share another inspiring story, that of Emily LeBeau Lucchese. Emily LeBeau Lucchese, welcome to Unspoken Unsung. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Actually, it's really good to have you with us, particularly because um, a major part of the decision to launch this podcast came when you wrote your wonderful book about our mother. And so it's particularly a pleasure for me to be able to see and speak with you today, um, you know, on the first podcast we'll launch for 2021. It's my honor. Oh, thank you. So, I understand that you and I are both hearing impaired. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, when did you discover your impairment? Well, it's it's interesting. So, we know now that I have two types of hearing impairment. I have um, central auditory processing disorder. So, that means that I hear pretty much everything at the same level. It's also called cocktail party effect because uh -huh. um, if you go into a restaurant, you don't really have any differentiation between the sounds in the background and the person trying to speak to you. 
And then my other problem is I just have hearing loss. Um, and we didn't fully recognize it when I was a kid because my mom's also hearing impaired. And then my dad had hearing loss um, from some army training. He didn't get his uh, sound in quickly enough, his ear protection in quickly enough. And so he lost some hearing. Um, so we were always kind of a TV's blaring type of household. And, <laughs> and so it's funny because um, my parents saved everything from my childhood. And um, one day my dad dropped off these two huge tubs and it was a lot of my my um, childhood evaluations. So I was testing poorly for hearing um, at the age of five. Um, and then my kindergarten teacher complained that I slurred my speech because again, with the central auditory processing disorder, I hear um, most of my words blend together. So I knew by the time I was a teenager that I wasn't like everyone else, but um, I was so, you know, I adapted so well to it. I had all these personal modifications and then, uh, you know, a lot of things it took me twice to do studying. I had to work harder than a lot of my peers Um, and, uh, but finally though, at at 30, I did have to get the hearing aids. And they help, but when you've gone that long without them, you're not really keen on them. Mm-hmm. So the first six weeks I had to wear them were a complete nightmare um, because you're hearing things for the first time, really, and your brain has to process That's it. That's true. And it's so jarring. Um, yes. The only neat thing was one time hearing um, the wind whistle for the first time. Yeah. That was really special. And then after that... Um, I really wasn't feeling them. So I'm still terrible about wearing them. I, I, I've i had the same pair for 12 years because I wear them maybe a quarter of the time. Uh, it's like the second I can take them out, I do. Um, but I do need them for, for most social situations. Um, even if we were to have people over in the house, mm-hmm. I would put them on. Um, because if not, they have to repeat themselves to me. Which is, is no tough. fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I noticed I was I went to my audiologist mm-hmm. and while I was in the waiting room I read an article about an audiology school that took their uh, students and had them wear earplugs for mm-hmm. about two weeks to uh, develop empathy for the patients they would see. And within that two week period a lot of them began developing signs of depression. Really? Yeah. I oh, think that's... there's a big emotional impact to it, especially when people get irritated when you ask what time and again. I, you know, it's funny. I think one of the reasons I have a PhD is just how many times in my life people have called me stupid to my face. Yes, yes. You know, um, particularly like I remember one time I was getting off the L right at um, UIC where I went, went for my PhD. So this is University of Illinois at Chicago. It's right off the blue line. And um, I was off the L and um, the L in that particular situation actually runs below on the highway. And I was standing on the bridge and a man asked me for directions and I couldn't hear him because of that train. I kept asking one more time, one more time. And he just said, you're stupid. And he walked away. Wow. Uh, and I've had people like at the grocery, like at the deli case, don't want to deal with me if I say, I'm sorry, I'm hearing impaired. Can you repeat it? 
That kind of hurts my feelings. Well, a lot of people um, begin to isolate a little bit. You know, I, I, I found myself when I was thinking about you, uh, the idea that you're a prolific writer, that it's often said that writers are also prolific readers. Yes. <laughs> Is that, was that one of the adjustments, perhaps, that you made in your life to, to hearing? So reading is all credited to my mother um, mm. because she actually did not read well. Um, she has dyslexia and she has a type of dyslexia where it's not that she reverses her letters or that they move around the page. She has no memory for words. So every time she sits down to read, it's, sound, it's sounding it out for the first time. And she didn't want me to experience that. She really did not read her first book until she was in eighth grade. And mm. it was a little woman. And it was, um, she was at a, a, a boarding school in Bangkok. And there was a very nice teacher who took time for her um, and helped her. And so she loves that book. Um, I never really took to it, which was her disappointment. Mm. But <laughs> she, um, from the time I was a kid, she didn't, we didn't really understand fully at the time. I was hearing impaired, hearing impaired kids uh, do have trouble learning to read because of sounding things out, you know. Um, uh -huh. And so she just worked so overtime with me as a kindergartner and a first grader um, so that I would read fluidly. And um, I don't think I was truly aware at the time that um, I was struggling because she worked with me, you know, she was always, um, she's a nurse also. And she, um, took off from when I was about like one or two years old to when I was 12 years old. Um, so she was always the room mother. Um, and she was always making sure I was performing as I needed to in school. So I don't think I was keenly aware of it. And especially, you know, we were in the, that house, the type of house where um, reading was rewarded. We had a ton of books, ton, a ton, a ton, a ton of books. Um, every when I was a kid, they would have this scholastic form, and you'd fill it out. And she always got us books, and that was always um, it was kind of thing like if you, if you were reading quietly in my household, you got praised. <laughs> Which, like, I really wish that would happen for me as an adult. Like, I'm reading quietly. Who would like to praise me? You know. <laughs> so the rewards um, did that? Did that turn you into a voracious reader at an early age? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, from the time I was a kid, I loved. Um, this is kind of funny. I loved novels about girls. So all the things that were popular in the '80s, um, the Babysitters Club. The um, Sweet Valley Twins, which is kind of funny that I'm, I'm telling you about that. Um, we had like every in the series, and this was like they had 50, 60 books, and mm. we had every single one. Um, and then by the time this is interesting, I was in um, sixth grade. Um, my I had a, a teacher, Mr. Smith, um, who began turning me on to more issue-based books involving girls. So um, he had me read um, Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, which is mm. about um, a girl who was about my age um, growing up in the segregated South and just being completely terrorized 
um, by the world they lived in. Um, and then I started getting interested in, in um, Holocaust memoirs written, aimed at, at children. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that was, you know, by the time I was in junior high, which interestingly, I did not take to A Kill a Mockingbird. I, I just want to say, like, whoever's listening, please don't send me letters. I just don't care for that book. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a young girl. And that's an issue-based book, but I was not feeling that book. Yeah. So it, it sounds as though, <clears throat> you know, all things said that, that you might have had your, your goals or your life path plotted out earlier than some. Did you know what you wanted to do early? I knew by my junior year of high school that I wanted to be a journalist. And um, I had, uh, I was on the the school newspaper. Um, I had started writing for it my sophomore year. And um, I knew I wanted to be a journalist. And this is kind of funny to say, um, right after my junior year of high school, I went to journalism camp uh, Mm. at, at, at Northwestern. And um, there was an instructor there who, who told me that I should consider broadcasting. And um, so I, I ended up going to University of Missouri and I planned to go into broadcasting. Um, and, and that was my emphasis in the journalism school. And um, in my last semester, um, I worked full time at the NBC affiliate which is for students it's it's run by the university it's an NBC affiliate but um it has uh, most of the reports are, are produced by students and um so I was doing three 12 hour shifts there a week and um I'm glad I found out then I, I broadcast reporting and broadcast news is just not for me um I didn't like how short it was Mm-hmm. And um, I, I just felt that I had to do a lot of things as uh, a reporter to get a story I didn't feel comfortable with. Um, you know, there was one instance where uh, a, a baby was shaken to death by a, a mother's boyfriend. And, you know, the news director sends you to see if you can go get comment. And um, I'd had a really good professor who had advised if you don't want to do something like that, just give them your card. And if they want to talk to you, they'll talk to you. And so I, you know, but you don't want to go bothering someone. Yes. And then you're reporting it and you feel like you're reporting someone's personal business. And that doesn't feel good. That doesn't feel good. Um, And so I um, graduated, came back to Chicago and I took the, most soulless job <laughs> working for a non-for-profit that does advocacy for 401k and profit sharing mm-hmm. and i was doing their publications i had an amazing mentor there named deb and um she was just a, a phenomenal friend and advisor during that time period and we were in arizona on 9-11 at a conference that did not happen um and I just really wanted to get home and um, be with my, my now husband. He was my boyfriend at the time. And um, really just, you know, I thought I need to take the jump. I don't want to be doing this forever, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I came home and 
within a week, I put in my two weeks notice, which wasn't like that smart looking back, but you do that kind of stuff when you're 23. Um, and so I was, you know, back working at Bath and Body Works mm-hmm. and um, freelancing. And um, then I started doing temp jobs. And right after my 24th birthday, I had a temp assignment in the Chicago Tribune newsroom doing um, like an Excel database. And I brought my clips and I introduced myself. And um, one editor, Marsha Baruki, uh, took me on. And um, from there, I, I spread out to the other editors that I introduced myself to. And um, it was a really great seven years. Of, mm-hmm. I had about 800 stories in the Chicago Tribune. And, um, but at the same time, I also fe- felt like there were times when I was working at the Story Factory, you know, um, of those 800 stories, you know, come Christmas time, it's where to go to sit on Santa's lap and, <laughs> you know, things like that. Where, deep. Yeah, deep stuff. <laughs> and I did, I would say like, you know, if I did 12 stories a month, two to three would be really meaningful to me. And then the rest, it was like, you know, five gifts for him for Christmas, you know, and uh-huh. I, I wasn't, um, but it was a really good experience because my editors were some of the, the best writers. I've, and, and so seeing how they corrected me was such a learning experience. So what I would do is every time my story was published, I'd get the hard copy of the paper and I would compare it to my Microsoft Word document to see what changes were made so that I could better structure myself. And um, I had uh, one uh, uh, editor um, named Ross Orland, and he was just a phenomenal writer. And so he, he just by editing me, just developed me. So that mm. was really helpful for me. But I was ready for the next step. And so I, I knew I wanted to write his historical nonfiction and I knew I was missing like document analysis skills and um, a lot of historical research skills. So I went to DePaul University for my master's in uh, communication, emphasis, media, and society. And um, I just had a really great um, advising team there. And I wanted at that point, to earn my PhD in communication. And my grandpa had his PhD from UIC. My aunt has a PhD in UIC. Mm. Um, they're in the biological sciences. So I guess I, being in the social, uh, social sciences, I'm, I'm more uh, the renegade here. But um, I had a really great advisor who helped me um, put together a good writing sample because I'm not a natural academic writer. Mm. Um, I'm a journalist who's can do academic writing, but tends to be fairly irritated by it. So she helped me, <laughs> uh, my my advisor at DePaul helped me, and I was accepted. And it was crazy looking back. The year I applied, it was um, during the recession, 2008 into 2009. And I went to an open house for the program, and the department had was asked, how many applications do you have? How many spots do you have open? And she said, we have 96 applications in six spots. Wow. So, 
I made it though. And I remember thinking, oh, knowing my luck, six spots and I'll get seven or eight or I'll get offered a spot but not funding. But I, I got both. Um, so I, I was fully funded and um, I taught there in exchange for my education. Um, so getting PhD is a really miserable experience. And <laughs> uh, what was? getting a PhD is a miserable experience. Oh, really? Um, because it's only about a 60% graduation rate and they just kind of break you. And um, I ha- you're highly criticized all the time. And um, I was really lucky because um, I was in a cohort of five people um, and, and four of us were women. And um, we just became very good friends. And then kind of started just just this club of us, you know, with some of the women who were in the, the, the cohort above us and after us. And um, I just ended up meeting all these best friends um, who are still really dear to me, um, even though I've been out for five years. And so it was during my, my PhD program, I wrote my first book, Ugly Prey. And then I was graduated and waiting for that book to publish when I found um, your mother's memoir on the top shelf mm-hmm. at my local library, at the Oak Park Public Library. So do you think that it, it kind of sounds to me that all of the challenges you had that started with hearing, that mm-hmm. led to all the challenges of learning early on, kind of might have built a really strong core in you that helped you through the PhD program? Is, is there anything to that? I think, yeah. You know, you you... You have to cheer yourself on because no one else will. And um, I, I had very good endurance for it. Um, I, I had this advisor who would wanted to go chapter by chapter with two weeks reading time. Um, and, you know, she would change one line or want some small part changed and then you had to send it back to her and wait another two weeks to hear from her and um you know it was pretty abusive and um she i I was really fortunate just to have the support i did in my life from my my parents and my husband and my in-laws um because it was such a negative experience where you you felt like the person didn't want you to graduate, like they they were intentionally holding you back. And um, the odd thing is, is I think I had kind of a middle of the road experience for my you know for PhD students, pretty middle of the road. Um, I have a friend who elsewhere her husband um, was a chemistry PhD and they failed him at his defense. And his university does not allow for other defenses. So it's over. No way. Yes. It's, yeah. It's, I mean, it's like the kind of stuff that keeps like PhDs up at night. So when you (laughs) through your your PhD program, were you already married at that point? Yes. Yeah. So um, I met my husband when he was 20 and I was 21. And then I, uh, we married um six years later mm-hmm. and so yeah and i didn't start my phd until i was almost 30 
which um, which is interesting because then he started his his he was doing the part time MBA at University of Chicago, um, and it's like, where did we get that energy from? You know, <laughs> now we're in our forties and <laughs> we you know we're very interested in the early bedtime. Um, and you know it used to be we were, you were up late and you had so much to do and um, yeah, we're glad that's behind us. So, were you from the same town? Did you go to the same yes. school? Yes, we went to both went to Oak Park River Forest High School. I was class in ninety six. He was class in ninety seven, and we only met once, and he has no memory of even meeting. <laughs> and that no. was at prom, and we <laughs> sat at the same prom table. And he was a junior, and I was a senior, and he has no memory of me. And I'm like, you know, I still bring it up. <laughs> um, that's good so it depends like if you ask how who, how we met it's it's kind of a story but um you know how those tables are really big and, and they sit 10 people and so it was just a couple you know i i'd gone with me and two of my best friends and our dates and um uh, some girls that we were friendly with signed up for the other spots with their dates mm-hmm. and my michael was one of them and um you know he's really tall and he has dark hair and um this accent you know kind of this this you know little spanish accent and um he just really couldn't be bothered by any of it so i thought he was really intriguing and meanwhile he doesn't remember me <laughs> <laughs> I think he thinks like <laughs> I'm making it up. Like he knows now that we're both there. But. Oh, that's good. That's good. So you, your your doctorate. What what had you choose to be to pursue a doctorate again? I think it, you know what it was is I just I didn't feel done with my studies. Mm-hmm. Um, and this opportunity to be a fully funded student and to to become a scholar, I I just. I had to go for it. Um, and I was interested in that point in teaching was interesting to me, but I hadn't really done it to the extent that I've done it now. So um, it was more of an idea that was interesting um, and something that would give me an opportunity to maintain my writing and my research um, while teaching. Mm-hmm. So. And were you done freelancing at that point? Well, I'm I still freelance, but it's just um, a lot less. I do a lot longer pieces now, um, and f- for very slack. So I've had this year um, two or three stories in the New York Times, um, a couple in the American Bar Association Journal. Those are lengthy. Those are about three thousand three thousand words, um, and. I have one coming out in Discover Magazine um, that I'm on deadline for that is actually based, it's it's going to be based on the book about nurses and PTSD. So um, that's coming up. And um, so, so very um, select at this point, usually things that are just interesting to me. Um, so I don't actually receive many assignments anymore. I more do the pitching now for things that um, are interesting to me mm-hmm. or ideas I want to explore. You said you, you began to delve into historical nonfiction. Did that correspond also with your choice in reading? 
Oh gosh, that's all I read. Yeah. Really? Um, I, I read, this year I think I'm only going to make it to 30. Um, Only to 30? Yeah, only to 30. (laughs) Yeah. But I I read some 500 pagers this year. And if you're hunting books, that'll, that'll suppress your number. Um, and I'm not going to lie. I got into a jigsaw puzzle app this year <laughs> on my iPad. <laughs> okay. And um, those are delightful. Uh, so about 30 this year. Last year was 36. Mm. So, and, and I would say last year of the, those um, 36, three were fiction. And a couple of them, it was unintentional. I didn't realize they were fiction when I bought them. Mm-hmm. Or I didn't, I got them at a book fair, you know, where everything's a dollar or $2 and you just, like load them up. You know? yeah, yeah. Uh, so this year, I think I have two fiction um, uh, that my uncle bought me for my birthday. So when you published your first book in 2017, mm-hmm. and how did you come by that subject? So that, that was, um, I was reading, I, I, so I knew for, for the, the, my first book, I thought it would be best if it took place in Chicago. Because this is my, I, I know what I'm talking about, right? I didn't want to, to, I was very concerned about accuracy and authenticity. authenticity. So I wanted it to be in Chicago. And um, I, was, I knew it was going to be focused on a female. And I was very interested in it being um, Italian-American. Um, because I was trying to trace part of my own heritage, um, and I was very interested in the experiences of my grandmother and my great-grandmother, um, which I, I just don't have much record of, you know. And um, I was at, I, I took a book out of the library called The Girls of Murder City by Douglas Perry, and it's brilliant. It's about the women who inspired the movie Chicago. You know the play? Yes. Uh, the musical. Those were real women. Um, wow. And Roxy Hart was um, based on a woman called uh, Beulah Nan. And um, uh, Velma Kelly was Belva Gard- Garden. And um, they were in jail alongside an Italian-American woman named Sabella Nitti. And there's, um, she wasn't a big part of Perry's book, but I saw this picture of her that ended up being on the cover of my book. And it was just, I saw that picture and I wanted to know more. And I sent to the Illinois State Archives a request for her trial transcript because Sabella Nitti had been sentenced to die for the murder of her missing husband in 1923. And there was no evidence and no motive um they didn't even have a positive id on the decayed corpse they pulled from a a suburban uh drainage uh sewer but prosecutors wanted an easy win because at the time you had these women who inspired chicago when they were glamorous and they would just smile at a jury and they would be acquitted so in sabella nitty prosecutors saw easy ugly prey because she didn't speak English. She didn't speak the standard Italian dialect. She spoke Barese. And she 
was very impoverished, um, and she was at a time when Italian-Americans were considered the most violent and feared group in Chicago and in most of the U.S. So um, I decided I was going to get the case, which was on record still because it had been a capital case, and um, it was 800 pages, and um, I just started piecing it together and um, just ended up doing this deep dive, you know, investigative journalism into this case. But at the same time, um, being able to explore her experience. I don't consider myself a true crime writer. Um, I like to write about women and to write about women very often um, from the past, you have to to look at either women who were victims or um, they were sinners um, or they were saints. Uh, But to, to find the regular woman it's very hard to do, but you can get that in these types of court cases. Um, so I was able to really explore her life um, and just a boundary shoot and, you know, that it can find her in her full life. Hmm. Um, and so that came out in May of 2017. Um, it was recommended by the New York Times in June of 2017. Which resulted in a dinner party with <laughs> my family. <laughs> <laughs> a group of 10. Yeah, 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 that was it, yeah. Um, it was it was really great. Um, and that, yeah, that was 2017. And then, um, but it, the summer before is when I, I found your mom's book and I decided um, I wanted to do something with it. And what, what was it about her book that, that called you to write about it. So I loved how honest your mom's book was. I think, I, well, one, I was very, um, I appreciate her honesty and how she respected, but she did not care for Chief Nurse Cobb. And I just come off that PhD with, you know, doctor, let's go a chapter at a time. And um, I knew that feeling of being burned by a, a superior. Um, or, or wanting, so I, I, I think I felt a camaraderie with her in that sense. Um, but just how honest she was. Um, she owned up to mistakes that she made. Um, if she if she made mistakes, um, she put in things that were embarrassing to her. Right, like um, when when she got into the the, the argument with with Helen, with Nurse Helen, um, when they were in the second concentration camp. Um, and it was, you know, Nurse Helen's fault, if you ask me. But she didn't have to include that. But when she did, she made herself so relatable and so human. And um, I just appreciated it so much. But at the same time, I knew there was something major missing. Mm. And I, I knew that she was protecting us as the reader. Um, from what she had endured. Just for the listener's sake, um, mm-hmm. I should mention that the the story that you're referring to, my mother was a Navy nurse who was stationed in the Philippines prior to World War II. And mm-hmm. then when the war broke out, originally that seemed like just a plum assignment and it was such a romantic scene, a wonderful port of call. And, and, and uh, then comes World War II and she was interned in two different Japanese prisoner of war camps. 
So, um, and what you mentioned there, I think is very, very insightful because um, everything else that I've, I mean, the, the commandant of the camp that she was rescued from was executed for war crimes. And yes. yet, even with us, with the children, she seldom spoke about her experience at all. And when she did, she really downplayed it. And my experience of her book was that she really downplayed her experiences a lot. And mm -hmm. so it's insightful of you to see that there was really something left to tell. I didn't understand why until we spoke. And you told me about the psychiatrist. And then I understood why she'd been so muffled. And at that point, I, I, I began doing more research and understanding more of the POW experience and understanding that really the way she was treated was standard for the time. Um, and so at that point, I'd already, when you and I spoke, I'd already had the contract, the book was in progress, but that um, greatly shaped that conversation, the direction I would head, because I felt that man silenced her. Yes. Um, Just for the listener's yeah. sake, too, I'll, I'll expand on that. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, when she was rescued, she was rescued the same day as the flag went up on Suribachi on Iwo Jima, mm -hmm. which caught a lot of national headlines. And the rescue, as, as amazing as it was, didn't catch as much notice. Mm -hmm. But when she was brought back to the States after having been in this little camp for so long, they put her on bomb drives. And so she she had to go speak. They would put her in her Navy dress white. She was an officer. And then she would be introduced as this heroic figure who was rescued from a Japanese prisoner war camp. And the whole atmosphere of that was very difficult for her. So she got transferred away. And when she was out of the limelight, that was when what I believe was her PTSD began to surface. Suddenly she when she told me that she uh, used to find herself crying and not know why, mm -hmm. not be able to stop. And my father was uh, communicating with her in letter form, and he suggested that she see the Navy psychiatrist. When she did, the psychiatrist told her, look, the guys that put the flag up on Suribachi are the ones that, are, that have caused for, you know, any kind of trauma, war trauma. Uh, you're a fake, is essentially what he said. And to the end of her life, she you mentioned the psychiatrist to her. You do not get a good uh, response at all. No, yeah. no. I mean, I um, the thing is, is if I could find this doctor's name, I would print it. Mm. I absolutely would. Um, and if, if <laughs> I would in, in future editions of the book, I absolutely would because... Um, well, you can't defame the dead, so <laughs> mm. so I'm not worried about that. But um, you know, I'd like the record to be made. This, this is what what nurses like your mother endured when they came home from more than three years of of being inmates in a, in a prisoner of war camp. Well, one of the things about your writing that I mean, first of all, it's so relatable. It read more almost like a novel to me but it was so meticulously researched. And I'm wondering where where that gap led you in terms of what you wanted to research and where you went from there. How did you research that book? Oh gosh, so um, I, I operate when I can in primary sources. So I had um, obviously your mother's memoir. 
but I also was able to get oral histories that were taken by the um, Bureau of Medicine and Surgery's um, uh, historical records. Um, and there was, uh, your mother gave a very lengthy um, oral history, which was wonderful, um, as did um, three other of the Navy nurses um, who had been one of the 12. And so that was very guiding. And then I also had oral histories from some of the Navy men, uh, the corpsmen, the pharmacists, some of the surgeons um, who had gone with them as far as um, Santa Scholastica, which was where they were. It was a, a women's music college that had been turned into a um, makeshift hospital, and that's where the, the Navy men and women were taken prisoner of war. So I was able to use that to, to get through March of 1941. Um, and then... Um, I had some army uh, records, um, but what was really helpful was there's a surprising number of memoirs and diaries published in the 40s from people who survived these camps. Mm. And um, so I would find there was one called Drain Pipe Diary, and it was like two copies in the state of Illinois, and the Oak Park Public Library got it for me. Um, so that was very helpful. Um, so drain pipe diary was, she was also a nurse. She was civilian. Um, but she just, the, the, the woman who wrote it made tremendous record of what was happening in that camp. And so I was able to line up some of the things that had happened that the nurses had alluded to, but did not go fully articulate with what this woman had written down in her diary. So mm. it was things like that um, that was very helpful. I had a stack of, of these memoirs and diaries. Um, there was one man, um, I think his initials were A.V.P. Hartentorp, mm. and he kept great diaries. Right. So um, even the, the, the movie that they watched on Christmas Day, remember the first Christmas when they watched a movie right. and like he made note that he wrote it's a second rate film. Uh, <laughs> right? it, was, uh, it, was, it was something um, it, 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 I remember the, the, the plot of the film, but it was just it, they, they weren't excited about it, but they loved seeing um the dining room scenes or the living room and just seeing what the houses in the U.S. looked like. They were really taken with that. So it was that type of detail um, that I was able to include um, because of these these sources. So it's puzzle piecing when you write this type of thing because you it's, it's really stop and go writing. Um, you go into the scene and then you realize as you write what you don't know about it and then you chase down what you need to know about it. Mm. Well, as a family member, I can say, matter of fact, I, I dare say I speak for my brother and sister, that we learned more about our mother thanks to you and your book than uh, we can possibly thank you enough for. You know, you, you really, you captured her spirit just so beautifully and gave us so much more detail that she never shared with us. I mean, it's just, she was a very quiet, unassuming woman and didn't want a lot of attention. So you really gave us a legacy. You, you added so much to our family and our history that I don't even have words to thank you. 
Well, I appreciate you guys so much because I, I, you know, for listeners who don't know, I, I, I contacted you all in 2016 and was like, hey, you don't know me, but, <laughs> you know, and at that point, my, my, I, I, uh, I, you know, I had a PhD, which is nice enough, but my first book had not come out. I didn't have a track record. I couldn't come to you and say, hey, New York Times liked my first book. I'm not crazy. Uh, and you all were so nice you didn't shut me down you weren't uh you gave me a chance to prove myself and i really appreciated that because um who knows if you all had been like you're crazy please don't reach out to us please don't write about our mother maybe i i would have you know backed off and um so i'm really grateful you guys um it was important for me that that you all are happy with the work um and that you all feel your your mother's story, uh, her legacy was respected. Mm. Well, it was. I mean, uh, that that meant, you know, second only to when, when my mom passed away, she was buried at Arlington with full honors. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the more memorable moments I've ever experienced. Uh, first of all, because she was such a humble woman. And then to have a, a rifle platoon marching behind the caisson with the casket and and the Navy band and the the twenty one gun salute from across the green and all and all yeah. it, was, it was astounding. It, it it seemed so amazing to me that such a quiet, unassuming woman was treated so magnificently. And that's also what it was when you called. I mean, th- no small irony to me that that you know somebody so quiet here's somebody saying I want to write about her. I want to tell mm-hmm. her story. And I'm going, wow, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. How? Why? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I find them to be so inspiring, these women, because just how she kept going in this in in this concentration camp, and 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 I think to 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 make a note for for the listeners who aren't familiar with the story, these twelve Navy nurses were all of them weighed under a hundred pounds when they were liberated. Um, one of them weighed 68 pounds, had an undiagnosed tuberculosis. Um, your mom had beriberi, um, which is a vitamin uh, deficiency. Uh, they were in terrible shape, and they were showing up every day for their shifts at the infirmary um, to provide comfort, because that's really all they had left. Um, it was a slow-motion death camp, you know, lack of food, lack of medicine, they showed up every night to comfort these patients. And, uh, you know, your mom even showed up the night before. Um, they knew that there was a strong possibility they might be massacred on February 23rd, 1945, because the guards had put out uh, machine guns on the perimeter of the camp and they'd begun uh, digging shell graves. They also knew that Allied forces were in the area, and so they didn't know who would get to them first. And the night before they were liberated, it was also the date that they would have been massacred. And I think they were saved by something like six hours. And your mom showed up for her overnight shift. And that might have been her last day on Earth, and that's where she chose to spend it, was caring for others. Oh. You're, you're, I'm tearing up again. I mean, it's remarkable, <laughs> isn't it? Uh, that that, that it, what what she 
did. And um, I feel like we are close enough in history, right, that we have these materials that, you know, Oak Park Public Library can still dig out copies of these memoirs for me and, and we can we can preserve the history. And so I, I'm grateful. I'm sorry I made you cry. Um, no, I'm fine. All is well. This is joy. Okay. I, I, joy. I, I, um, I feel like, you know, we can, we can preserve the memory so that 100 years from now, people know who these nurses were and what they did. Well, that leads me to why we're here today because you know i was so amazed at just finding out how you know i i can't begin to imagine how many people saw my mom on a daily basis and had no clue of what she'd done who she was or any of that sort of thing so the notion behind doing this podcast unspoken unsung is just that all of a sudden that having read your book i thought wow there's so many people that I know within my circle who are extraordinary and nobody knows. They would pass them every day on the street yeah. and never know who they were or have a sense of what they'd done or what they'd endured or how they survived. And that was the incentive to do this, you know. And uh, so thank you for that. It, it gave me a, a purpose in, in trying to help create other people create legacy. I love that because, you know, I, I don't... I, I think that there, there there are people who can say that they're here on this planet because of your mom and these nurses. That um, I, I had one woman contact me, and um, both her mom and dad were in the camp uh, 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 in Los Banos, um, prisoners of Los Banos, as teenagers. And her dad was very, very ill and hospitalized for a very long time, and he survived it, and her and her siblings are here as a result um, because of the Navy nurses. And so I think that's something people don't realize is that um, these were slow-motion death camps, and the commander who, like you said, was, was executed for war crimes wanted these inmates dead, and these nurses were fighting for life. Mm. And as a result... So many inmates survived and came back to the U.S. and had families of their own. And there's, there's, you know, descendants um, of these survivors who survived because of your mom and the other nurses. I had an extraordinary opportunity some years back. That there's a town in Northern California called Los Banos. Oh, really? It's in the middle of nowhere. Really? But but it has this federal cemetery, uh, you know, and. The surviving members of the 11th Airborne, the group that rescued my mom, mm -hmm. uh, hold annual, or at that time held annual reunions, and I got invited to their reunion. Uh, General Swing, who was their commandant, is buried there, and there's a bust of, you know, of General Swing there in this uh, courtyard. So there was a ceremony, a really wonderful ceremony with all the veterans and, and their families, and, and they spoke of the experience and of General Swing, and then there was later a dinner, and I got to thank them. And yeah. what amazed me is how many of them said that that rescue was the greatest thing they had ever done in their life, and that if they had anything else to be proud of, that was it. Oh, they sure do. They oh, sure phenomenal. do. Yeah. Um. They sure do. It's a tremendous, uh, 
their their rescue was absolute tremendous and you know it, it, it part of it though you know not to keep being that person who brings it back to the nurses but <laughs> um Part of the reason they had such good intelligence is several young men escaped from the camp and the the, the medical corps, the nurses, um, marked them as dead so that there wouldn't be any retribution. So uh, they had their part in it too, I think, um, in, in making sure the Allied forces had the, the information they needed. But that's it's a tremendous rescue in, in how amazingly successful it was um despite the fact that the inmates didn't make it easy Mm. um and and so uh (laughs) this is in the book and um there's also a wonderful book called ghost soldiers by hampton sides and he focuses on the rescue at cabana chuan but in short um i think the u.s sought they would show up, they would say to the POWs, you're free, let's go, we got to get out of here. And instead, um, they had really odd behaviors that weren't anticipated by the rescuers. Um, there, one uh, woman who I'm in contact with, her, her mother was a teenager, and you know they, they went to go brush their teeth, right? Because here come these really handsome uh you know, soldiers, U.S. soldiers, and they want to look good. And so they're going out in a firefight <laughs> to try to go brush their teeth. Um, they were asking for food. Um, they wanted to pack, very much still in survival mode. Um, you know, in Hampton Sides' book, where he focuses on the rescue of the survivors of the Bataan Death March, how just incredulous they are. And they thought that it was a trick. They thought they were Germans. And so... Um, it's just a, a remarkable rescue, which your 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 mom worked through. Um, she nursed throughout liberation, and even after liberation. Yeah, well, your book is extraordinary. It's a great Thank read. You. I mean, it's it's just so well done. I I commend you. Thank so you. what's next? What is there anything else on the horizon that you're working on? Yeah, well, I, I'd love to do a young adult version of um, of uh, the, the, uh, this is really war. Um, I'd like to, it, so the title of, of um, the book about your mom for, for listeners is This is Really War, the incredible true story of a Navy nurse POW in the occupied Philippines. I'd like to do a young adult version, and um, I would like to um, pack it with pictures, and um, uh, I, I'd like to return to the Don't Worry About Me title, see if I can pull that off again mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> that was the original title was don't worry about me um because that was a telegram your your mom sent home um to her parents right before she was taken prisoner of war and i always thought that was so captured um who she was in 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 this war and um so i'd like to do that um my publisher doesn't really do that kind of a book so I have to, to go on the hunt, and I have to admit, I, I've had a couple projects jump up in front of that, um, and one of them is right now I'm working with um, a woman named um, Kathy Rubin, and um, I'm helping her, uh, we're co-authoring her, her memoir, um, because she survived uh, an attack by Ted Bundy, the serial killer. Mm-hmm. And um, she was in the Chi Omega sorority house in 
1978, when um, Ted Bundy went to Florida State University and just picked this house at random and um, beat her in the head um, while she slept. And she survived and she testified against him. And she's um, really such a bright light um, who is such a survivor, but so cheerful. And I'm really amazed by her of how much she doesn't hold on to bitterness. And um, we have a mutual friend, um, the author Tori Telfer, and um, Tori connected us. I asked for it. Um, I had heard Kathy um, being interviewed on Tori's podcast. Um, and she's so cheerful and she just loves the little things in life. And I thought if this woman ever wants to write her memoir, I would co-author with her. Mm. Um, and so, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm not really a co-author. Um, I don't, it's weird for me, but at the same time, um, with Kathy, it's so right. And so, you know, right before you 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 decide you're going to work together, you're kind of always looking for like a little sign or which I do. And then I didn't realize that um, Kathy her is Cuban and my mother-in-law is Cuban. And so it was just like, oh, there's my sign. Uh, so she um, she's really neat. So we're working on that. And um, I'm really ready to get writing on that. I'm really ready to get writing. And then I have some other projects um, that's with that are with my agent. And I just, I don't even want to jinx them at this point. So I, I won't say any, anything, um, but some more narrative nonfiction about women, which is hard to sell. You know, I get a lot of no's. Um, but it's so timely. I mean, it's it, it, history is so filled with men and men's stories and so little of the women that really made so much happen. It's, um, you know, it's amazing because, I, you know, in, in my books, I have so many notations uh, because I have to to be taken seriously. And then I'll flip open, um, you know, a, a history book by, you know, some men don't even have to, to, to list their sources. They're just that valued by their readers that they're able to do that. And sometimes I feel, you know, irritated by that. I can imagine. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no, I'm 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 back on the trying to sell women's history grind, and um, I think I'll be quite successful with with Kathy's book um, in selling that. Um, but my other women's history, we'll see, we'll see. Uh, well, I wish you the wet, the best. Thank you, thank yeah. you, and um, thank you for your time today, and thank yes. you for the wonderful work you do and. Uh, as my brother mentioned to you last time we had a little chat, you have been drafted into the family. You are now a, also a Danner, so it could be Emily Le, LeBeau Danner Lucchese. I will tell my husband. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You know, it's really, it's an honor that, um, you know, I, I, I should say for the listeners, a, a couple of weeks ago, I, I sat in on a book club that, that your brother had organized and... Um, I was so excited um, to be part of that with you and, and, and your brother. Um, after it was over, it was like 9.30 Chicago time, and I could barely go to sleep. I was so excited. Oh, that's um, wonderful. It's really just an honor for me that, that you guys are happy, and um, that makes me very happy. We're doing something important in the world, and thank you and bless you.
Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast. Good. Well, thank you. I want to again thank Emily Lebeau Lucchese for the phenomenal work she did researching and writing the book, which inspired our podcast, Unspoken, Unsung. Emily's latest book is titled, This is Really War, the incredible true story of a Navy nurse POW in the occupied Philippines. This is Really War is a spellbinding read and I highly recommend it. I also recommend Lucchese's first book, Ugly Prey, An Innocent Woman and the Death Sentence that Scandalized Jazz Age Chicago. You'll find both on Amazon and the Chicago Review Press website. And be sure to check out the terrific ratings for both books on Amazon and Goodreads.com. again next month for another episode of Unspoken Unsung. And if you like our show, please subscribe, rate, and review it. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find podcasts you enjoy. Also check us out at www.converseyer.net. That's C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-Y-E-R, Converseyer, for more great podcasts. Unspoken Unsung was recorded at the Conversaire Studio, Carlsbad, California. Additional recording and mixing was done at Brother Rock Projects, also in Carlsbad. Martin Danner engineered the recording. Post-production engineer was Ken Langan. The show's host and producer is Dan Danner. The podcast theme music, Hope Not Hate, was written and performed by David Gwynne Jones for Zapsplat. Fields of Joy was written and performed by Dave Miles for Zapsplat.